Excess for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and make our way through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. You know, I feel like I'm getting easier at saying that every single time I do it. I'm still on the same original breath. With me as always is my amazing co-host Jonah. Hello everyone. Oh man, I needed to breathe. That felt so much better. Okay. We're reading X-Men. It feels like we're actually reading X-Men for a change. Like we're really reading X-Men. Yes, I completely agree. We're actually reading the issues that you would think an X-Men podcast would be reading. And we're going to be doing that for the next couple of episodes, for my episodes at least. Absolutely. In fact, we have a couple of cool announcements coming up about how the show is going to be changing a little bit. Our first volume of X's for Podcast is coming to a close sooner than later, at which point we're going to be relaunching with a little bit of retooling just to make sure that we're giving you guys the best possible show. We are covering X-Men 117 to 121. Those of you who have read X-Men before or have looked at Wikipedia might be aware that the Dark Phoenix Saga is coming very soon. We're going to be using that opportunity to relaunch, reformat, and get you guys all sorts of new X's for podcast goodies. However, until then, it will be business as usual. Today, like I said, we will be covering Uncanny X-Men 117 to 121, as well as Power Man and Iron Fist 56 and 57. Also, we're going to be taking a look at X-Men Classic, I guess. Though, it's important to note, we're actually almost out of X-Men Classic. So I kept making this big deal about how there's going to be a bunch of ones that we're just not going to cover because they're going to give us too much going on in the future, and that's true. Except there's only four. There's really only four. There's two about Scott and Mr. Sinister, and then there's two about Rogue and Mystique. The only problem being Rogue, nor Mystique, nor Mr. Sinister exist yet. But that's okay, because as we're going to talk about this episode... Apocalypse is just popping up in X-Men Classic like it's nobody's fucking business. Yeah, uh, for today we will be covering Classic X-Men 23 to 27 to match their corresponding Uncanny. It is interesting that we only have a few more left that we're actually going to be reading. I think the idea of Classic issues were supposed to be story inserts to give us a little more information, a little more characterization for new readers picking it up from there. But from doing this podcast, we kind of realize that it's doing the opposite. I think it's doing a little more damage than it's intending to by providing a little too much spoilers for someone who hasn't read X-Men yet. But if I'm going to credit classic X-Men with anything, I think the art is always just amazing. I really, really love John Bolton, so I love what you're saying with the art is always amazing, but I am going to have to say this classic really tested my patience when it came to that. John Bolton is a phenomenally capable artist, and he is effortlessly capable of showing so many different styles and one of them that he shows to show the difference between a dream sequence and what's currently going on is just not my scene. Yeah, when we do talk about that classic issue, we will discuss the interpretation that John Bolton did for the plot of that classic. I'm also not a fan of it. I think it could have been executed a different way, but I'm also not an artist. And if that was his vision, that was his vision. And you know, that's a lot more than fair of you because... I also love these artists, but I feel like it's okay for me sometimes to be like, no, I spent money on this. And there is something about the Dave Cockrum cover to Uncanny 117, where it looks like an angry burnt marshmallow is about to eat the X-Men. I will say that 
issue cover is very misleading. It doesn't actually give a lot of what the plot of that specific issue is. I don't like it either. When you first look at it, you think it's going to be something completely different, especially where 116 leaves off. But we'll get to that. I think beforehand, before we usually start everything, we'd like to do a little in-house cleaning. Nico, would you like to tell us about these artists and writers for these issues? Well, before I can do that, because you're so right, I need to, I need to go out of my way to correct something. We have been treating all of the X-Men classic backup stories as though they'd been by Chris Claremont. And with fairness, through today, which is classic 27, all but five have been. I just want to go out of my way to credit people where credit is due. Joe Duffy is responsible for Classic 18, which was Jean training in the woods with her new powers against the other X-Men. Classic 20, which was Storm with the weird dream sequence and the zombies, which we didn't care for. And Nesenti, who was going to do some amazing work on Daredevil later on in her career. Phenomenal writer. She's responsible for today's Classic 25 and Classic 27. And then longtime X-Men letterer Tom Orzakowski is the guy who wrote the Logan Banshee story that we are not so crazy about the art on. However, to the material we're going to cover today, like every single issue until 143, our creative team on Uncanny X-Men is going to be Chris Claremont and John Byrne. They get occasional help from guys like Terry Austin, super phenomenal talent, as well as Dave Cockrum, who hangs in forever on covers until he inexplicably comes back onto the title when they go back to space. So just hang in. He's not going anywhere. Like I said, we do have a number of people doing some fill-ins. The aforementioned classic 25 and 27 by Anna Senti, 26 by Tom Orzakowski. Chris Claremont did the rest of the classics we'll be covering. And as always, John Bolton covers everything on the back end of that. And while I seem to keep leaving it out while discussing the episode, we will be covering Power Man and Iron Fist 56 and 57, also written by Joe Duffy, however, here credited as Mary Joe Duffy, with pencils by Trevor Vaughn Aiden. It's also important to note that Bob Layton did the cover pencils on these. Bob Layton, who again, is going to help launch X Factor. So it's just really interesting the way all of these artists kind of worked in the same world over and over again for some time. Well, I guess with all that out of the way, Jonah, you want to tell us a little bit about the interiors of these books? Absolutely. In Uncanny X-Men number 117, Xavier recounts his first psychic showdown ever against Shadow King, and Kid Thief Storm is shoved in. Uncanny X-Men number 118 and 119. The X-Men head to Japan and team up with Sunfire to battle Moses Magnum in two issues with a completely forgettable main plot, but seriously way too much background action. Banshee's injured and can no longer use his mutant abilities. Wolverine meets Lady Mariko. Proteus... First Unleashed in Uncanny 104 begins to bubble to the surface, and Jean moves to Mirror Island to join Moira, Jamie, Alex, and Lorna, and the rest of the Misfit Toys. In Uncanny X-Men 120 and 121, filled with Canada and ice puns as well as some plot holes, Vindicator returns to nab Logan, and then it just sort of ends. Power Man and Iron Fist number 56 and 57. Nothing happens, it's just more living monolith. There's also a lot of weird cheating going on! Classic X-Men number 23. Trying to play a hero, Nightcrawler jumps overboard to save his ship worker and ends up stopping a ritual on a deserted island. Classic X-Men number 24. Jean gets robbed and tricked in Greece by the illusion master, Mastermind. Classic X-Men number 25. Wolverine becomes a hunted while finding a new understanding of wildlife. Classic X-Men number 26. Wolverine and Banshee recount a tale of meeting in the past and accidentally working together. Classic X-Men number 27. The somewhat forced love triangle of Scott, Jean, and Logan get a tale about Logan and Jean exploring the sewers and almost dying in each other's arms. 
I have to be real with you. That is not going to be the only time there is a story about Gene Scott and Logan and somebody trying to get it that shouldn't be trying to get it that deals with people nearly dying in sewers. <laughs> it is so oddly specific. I'm not going to fight you on this. Now there's nothing left to do but to jump right into the episode. So, Uncanny, 117. This issue is so important because this is the first time we get Xavier having an enemy that isn't Magneto. Yes, well, he is just a one-off villain, and in this issue, he does die. I thought it was actually pretty interesting to have a little bit of Charles's past brought to us. We have a little bit of Charles exploring the world after his love affair with Moira, who just suddenly left him, according to Charles. So a lot of what's coming together here is to weave a pretty intense tale. So things are going to start piling up. I could not stop smirking when you refer to the Shadow King as a one-off villain who died here. I cannot even begin to tell you. This isn't even the only battle against him named Cywar. This isn't even the only arc versus the Shadow King called Cywar. So I can't, I can't, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even. But I do love the Shadow King a lot. He is a great villain. And this is certainly not the last we've seen of him all, Farouk. And Moira's going to get a lot of attention. It's going to be pretty cool. I really enjoy this issue because it's so fun to talk about and not talk about it at the same time. So much of it is this really beautiful abstract where Xavier is constantly in this amazing defensive strategy and Shadow King is always looking for fights and using fear and he's always trying to be scary and Xavier's like just trying to survive. I love that. I I just love their battle. I full-heartedly agree. I think the psychic fight between them was beautifully illustrated, and it painted a great picture. Charles remarks that this is his first battle against another psychic, and it's someone who's extremely powerful and almost matches him because he's not sure of himself. And I think that was a really great comparison to show him. And even in the past and in this moment, Charles talks about that he has a duty to protect and save people because he is a mutant. I think that's also a really nice touch. But even more, we have other things going on in the story. Jean leaves again. She doesn't find anything for herself in the X-Mansion anymore. She decides there's if everyone that she loved is basically dead, there's nothing for her to say anymore. So she's like, I'm going to just pick off my life and go somewhere else. Lilandra, of all people, uh, tells her, you can stay if you want. You know, we love you. And Jean's like, I know, but I got to go do this. There's too many bad memories here. And Lilandra's like, okay. Yeah, okay, you're leaving part of it out, though. Lavandra's like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna just steal Xavier off to space then. So she's not even like, well, Jean, if you're leaving, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna look at property in New Mexico. She's like, well, if you're leaving, we're gonna look at property on Andromeda 7. So, we'll, we can visit you. You're a giant space bird. You can come fly up in a ball of fire anytime you want, but we're gonna go. He doesn't need his other friends. Bye. I see you maybe never. I don't know what issue. Pretty much. It's a really interesting move here because anyone who came to the X-Men thinking they were going to get the original five under Claremont's pen have had their whole worlds fucked royally. And then you get used to this team and you fall in love with this team and it takes a minute. But you do. And now we're in an episode where Banshee's about to get fucking maligned and Xavier's off in space and... Gene is heartbroken and settling off to Muir Island with, seriously, that Muir Island cast is going to be the same ragtag fuck. I, they really are the gang of mutants who couldn't shoot straight, and they're going to remain that for something like a hundred issues. 
That's absolutely great. So there are two other things I do want to talk about this issue. As I said in my little summary for this issue, we get a glimpse of Charles traveling in Cairo. He is stolen from by Storm, which he remarks, now that I think back on it, this was Storm. This was not necessary. I think it's completely cheap. It was not needed. I don't like shoving character interactions in pass when it's not needed. It wasn't necessary at all. Completely. Part of it is I do love Storm having been a thief in Cairo, and I do love this connection, and I don't even hate Storm knowing Xavier as a child. But everything about the way it just kind of comes together here, it's very the end of Stan, come to think of it, he was you. I just don't need it. It just sort of bugs me here. The other thing I want to point out before we jump back to your last point is I actually do love the way Xavier beats the Shadow King. The Shadow King just goes for bigger and scarier form after bigger and scarier form. And Xavier's like, I saw him changing shapes like a chameleon. So I was like, he's wasting too much energy trying to be like over the top. So I'm just going to focus all of my power into one giant laser beam and fire it into his brain. And then it cuts back out of the psychic sequence. And Xavier's like, and just like that, the battle was over. And Xavier gets up from his chair, which is opposite side of the restaurant, looking right at Shadow King. Shadow King just falls down dead. And Xavier's like, I'd won. And I'm like, that's baller. It was, uh, uh, dare I say, epic. It was a pretty good scene. I really enjoyed the storytelling and just that little piece of narrative where Charles gets up like a badass. Cool guys don't look at explosions, literally. And then Shadow King just falls head first on the table and no one knows exactly what happened. That's great. The second point I want to talk about in this issue, we talked about in the summary, there's a lot of weird cheating going on. Not on purpose. But there's a really big problem with the new couples that are going to be forming in these issues. At the end of Uncanny X-Men number 117, Jean is in the airport getting ready to go to Scotland to go to Muir Island. But she runs into Misty Knight. And Misty's like, hey girl, love you, can't catch up, I'm on my way to Japan right now. And who does she hang out with in Japan? Cyclops. And what does she do? Help set her best friend Colleen up with Cyclops, knowing that Cyclops thinks Jean is dead, and Jean thinks Cyclops is dead. But Misty doesn't seem to think it's her place to piece this together? Or maybe it's possible that it's just not coming up that Jean's dead, and that Scott's dead to each other, and she's just not asking why they seem broken up? I'm really glad you pointed it out, because I forgot that it was the last page of this issue. And here's a weird thing. I'm going to jump in to a little piece of dialogue in the future issue that we're going to be covering in this episode but colleen even remarks oh it's a shame that misty says scott is spoken for but then she still goes for everything and misty doesn't stop her at all so it's still really weird it's not just weird it's it makes me have a certain feel and reaction to a lot of the story that's going on here one of the craziest things is the writers seem to know that it's about to get like shit will hit the fan. If you read the letters page on 116, and once again, I know the letters pages are something that's a little bit more difficult to come by. If you're not reading this in the original book or you're not reading this in the omnibus, it can be hard to get your hands on the letters page. But the letters page is sometimes a fun wealth of information. If you read the letters page here, it says that everybody's assuming that Scott and Jean are going to go one way, but you're going to find out some crazy stuff, and it's not. Misters Byrne and Claremont hopefully won't go anywhere for some time. And I want to be like, I don't actually think they know what they were doing here. This is one of the few things where I'm like, no, Scott gets like, and I can't describe it any other way, but Scott eventually just does get like white girl of the run at some point. 
It just keeps cycling love interest after love interest, and it's just not something that ever comes together for me. Oh, I com- I completely agree. Reading a different X Men run, I know Scott struggles with expressing his feelings, so it's going to be interesting to see him with a different love interest in Colleen. Now, I actually think something's really funny. We completely forgot to talk about what actually happened to the X Men in the storm. You know, this big foreshadowing ending of 116 where we're left off of the X-Men traveling to a storm. It's only like three pages. Nothing bad happens to them. They actually end up on a Japanese cruise ship that's heading back to Japan after a two-year voyage in the Antarctic. That's literally it. It was over so fast. And it kind of tells you, us kind of neglecting it till right now, how poorly written story-wise that was. I do agree. It's one of the problems where you've got so many narratives in the book. You're overlapping narrative, overlapping narrative. I also want to make a really interesting point. We've been talking about this issue for about 10 minutes. What's fascinating about that is one of our biggest criticisms about these issues is that the battle sequences are really hard to talk about. They're just punch, punch, fight, fight, kick, kick, and there's not enough clear to focus on. This issue is almost entirely a fight sequence. There is enough meat in this for us to focus and discuss for quite a while. Though, I do believe I've reached the conclusion of my notes on this issue. How about you? Yes, I do too. Now, before we get into the other uncanny, I want to take a little detour into classic X-Men number 23 and 24. We're going to find out in uncanny number 118 that the X-Men were on the Japanese cruise ship for six months. These next two classic issues actually happened during those six months, so I think it's fitting to talk about them now, as opposed to talking about the all, all the uncanny instead of all this timeline shifting. So, uncanny X-Men number 23. It's all about Kurt, which I love. I originally had a certain feeling about this issue, but actually towards the end of it, I was like, okay, no, I can like it. I thought it was actually pretty good. I think, okay, I like this story. I think it's a little xenophobic. I think there's something about how many high priests trying to sacrifice people we've had in a short period of time does bug me. What's interesting is I wish I'd had the foresight and the knowledge of these classics in advance, because I think I would have broken them up a little bit differently. I think I would have included this one with the Savage Land arc, because I think if this one with the Savage Land arc, I wouldn't think anything of it. I just would have been like, okay, more of the same. But here, because so much of it is focusing on new worlds and new borders, that's something that's so true about the issues in this episode. We're going to be talking about the X-Men spending extensive time in Japan, extensive time in Canada. We just spent extensive time in Egypt with Xavier. We're going to go to Muir Island. We go to space. The living monolith shows back up, I guess. But so we get so much different, so much alternate, so much not the same in this arc that it does kind of maybe make things about the last arc feel a little bit more xenophobic in retrospect, where everybody was kind of like savage cave person. You bring out this point, I actually have to agree with you. It's, it could have been anything else. It could have just been an alien race. It could have been a mutated animal race. It could have been something. It didn't have to be a high priest, again, trying to sacrifice someone for their god. Uh, It's, yeah, rehashing it comes across a certain way that you really don't want to come across, especially nowadays, where we want to be respectful of of other people's cultures. I think one thing I really did like about this issue is that Nightcrawler gets a little bit of a Spider-Man moment in a nuance where he realizes that being a hero means actually putting yourself in the action, but it actually has real-life consequences. He almost does get himself and the woman he saves killed, and he has to reflect on a moment that if I'm going to be a hero and save people, I have to be aware of the real-life consequences that, that can happen. And I think that's a good moment to have Kurt have, because 
up until this point, we have Kurt as this, this trickster, this playful, very, I don't want to say immature, but he's not, and he's not childish, but he's just very relaxed and comfortable in being playful. And it's nice, but it's also nice to have him have a serious moment for a second to realize, okay, I'm a hero. I have to be a hero. And that's a humongous part of his character going forward. He is driven by doing what's right and being good. He will go on to join the Catholic Church and become a priest. It's going to be a thing that happens to Nightcrawler. So he's a guy who is really obsessed with doing good and doing right. I also want to point out that a number of these classics have had some pinups. And while I haven't gone out of my way to mention too many of them, I did mention the Frank Miller. I do want to mention that there is a Wolverine pinup by Art Adams, and it's actually from his Marvel submission packet, and that's unfucking real And we will be covering a lot of Art Adams. We will be talking about Longshot. This guy here will have Longshot in an episode well down the line. But back to this. Joan, I believe you said you wanted to talk about Classic 24 next. Uh, I have to, but I don't really want to. So this issue is about Jean and where she goes. So she doesn't actually go straight to Muir Island. She stops off in Greece. We find out that Jean is robbed in Greece of all of her assets. She doesn't have a passport. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have clothes. And she is saved by this tourist guy who actually turns out to be Mastermind and is deceiving her. But it's really weird. It's a really weird shove-in because it makes me think that this was supposed to be going somewhere. Like something really bad happened to Jean and she's kind of being deceived and mind controlled or something along those lines but we find out later in an uncanny issue that she just goes straight to Muir Island afterwards she literally just like flies there yeah I wonder if having her mind fucked with by a powerful psychic is the start of something terrible for Jean I wonder Hmm. I also find the issue a little shoehorned I find it shoehorned in a little early as a matter of fact because if this classic came several issues later this would have been my favorite classic of all time But this classic, put so oddly early, makes you think this is a one and done, when instead, the Dark Phoenix saga just began. Ooh, see? This is an example of shoving things in a little too early for a new reader. I didn't realize that this is going to be a prelude to the Dark Phoenix saga. And you can maybe argue you can gather this from the context clues of things being said, but if I'm a new reader and I don't know anything at all about X-Men, I'm just starting and I'm reading these classic issues... I don't know what the Dark Phoenix saga is. I don't know what I don't know what's going to happen to Jean. I don't know if she's going to turn evil and kill so many people. No. It's one of the reasons I have ultimately decided that I feel these books do read better outside of the classics. The classic backstories occasionally offer a lot of fun, but for the most part, they do just sort of drag me down. I want to point out that This classic and the last classic's additional pages are next to nothing. In fact, this episode will see the end of the new content added to the original stories. We're seeing some big dynamic changes in the way classic works, and it almost as if they took our advice. There's one more thing I do want to point about this classic issue. This classic issue inserts a page into the uncanny issue where we actually see that Jean is in Greece and she's talking with a police officer about her being robbed and losing all her stuff and how she has to wire it from Athens. In this scene, there is a radio going off about the X-Men in Japan. And it's fine if you're going to continue the narrative that Jean doesn't know the X-Men are alive. 
but do not include things that I'm going to look at and read and say, Jean should have heard this. She should know the X-Men are alive right now and should be heading to Japan. It's a little... You're playing with a little bit too much fire and you shouldn't be doing that next to the Phoenix. Yeah, the Phoenix knows how to play with fire, man. I really do think that we are getting to some crazy Phoenix stuff. But before we get there, we're going to take a quick detour in Japan with Uncanny 118 and 119. I think it's just about impossible to talk about these two issues separately. I think they breathe together as one big story. Ultimately, it's the story of how the X-Men washed ashore in Japan thanks to the help of this cruise ship saving them from the catastrophic storm they were trapped in, team up with Sunfire to try and get themselves home. Throughout the course of this, Logan meets and instantly falls in love with one of Shiro's cousins, Lady Mariko, who I'm a big fan of. We also get the incredibly forgettable X-Men one-off villain Moses Magnum, who is the master of the Magnum Force. I love Jonah. And I love getting to do this with Jonah in addition to loving Jonah. But I also separately love when Jonah comes to me annoyed about the contents of these issues. And he's like, no, you've got Polaris, who's the mistress of magnetism. And now we have Moses Magnum, master of the Magnum force. What is that? (laughs) Being a science person, I need to know I'm allowed to transport myself into fantasy. But you also have to give me some form of reality if you're basing it on earth there is no such thing as a magnum force if you want to say he has control of earth and magnitudes great do not say magnum force because otherwise it just sounds like he can control his big old dick and i don't think that's what they're trying to say or one of those delicious ice cream bars that rachel bilson peddled yes there's something we did mention sunfire makes a return which from context clues of the previous issue if you know that they're going to japan it's almost like a guarantee he's going to show up especially because he's one of if only at this point that i know of Japan's only superheroes. And noticeably in these two issues, he's pretty bearable. He's not mean. He's willing to cooperate. He wants to defend his country. And that's great. Now, here's my problem with this, though. Where was this Sunfire in Giant Size X-Men number one? If you knew you were going to write Sunfire out, all you have to have for him to say to leave the team is, I appreciate you want me being on the X-Men, but my duties as a samurai take precedent. I cannot join the team. Because Claremont wasn't in charge yet. All this ninja influence, all of this Japanese influence, this is 100% Chris Claremont. And that was all Len Wein thinking that people had to fight to be on a team together. I agree with you. And that's one of the reasons when you said to me you were surprised that Sunfire will come up every couple of years. I was like, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's Chris Claremont. And Claremont's Sunfire is pretty great. I agree with you. I enjoy this Sunfire. This Sunfire is a dick without being like mercilessly horrible. Ultimately, though, this entire two-parter kind of boils down to chasing Moses Magnum, who was, by the way, employing the ridiculously named and even stupider-looking Mandroids and Mandroids Mach 2 Avengers villains. And just not much happens. It's all very self-contained. The biggest problem I have with these issues would definitely be the classic. In the classic, they reveal that Moses Magnum got his abilities from Apocalypse. Now, this is a solid seven years before there's an apocalypse. This is such an unnecessary shoehorning. It's this and the Sinister and the Rogue Mystique thing. That's really why I thought I was going to be done with Classic sooner. It's all right that we're going to finish it out because frankly, it's going to be done. It's going to finish up right with the Dark Phoenix saga right around there. So it's not going to be too bad, but I can't bear that apocalypse appearance. The big, big takeaway from this two-parter though, the thing we got to discuss is Banshee's injury. Yes, we actually get some pretty interesting choices for the main X-Men team. Banshee going through the biggest of all of them, 
Banshee basically sacrifices himself in a way to save Japan and basically the world when he counters Moses Magnum's final attack to destroy Japan. He exerts his power so greatly he actually damages his voice and he will no longer be able to use any of his powers at all. All of his powers were based around his sonic scream. He can't do any of that anymore. He chose to exert himself. I think it was a really good characterization for someone who hasn't gotten a lot to begin with. And a um, little spoiler here. Banshee's about to be, like, on some level injured forever. Like, seriously, Banshee is literally on some level injured forever. This will come up for the rest of his character. And I don't believe his powers are even back at normal by the time he rejoins the X-Men a hundred something issues from now. It's really, this is a turning point. We've complained for a very long time that there were too many X-Men. And now Xavier's in space. Jean is off with the Muir Island team and we see her occasionally. We just lost Banshee. Sunfire quit right away. Thunderbird died. We haven't seen much of Alex or Lorna lately. It's been a lot of changes. And I think we're really starting to see what it costs to be an X-Man. You know, I keep hinting that the Dark Phoenix saga is coming up because it is. And perhaps you might have noticed there's a little movie coming out called Dark Phoenix. But one of the things that we need to discuss is it's about to really cost a lot to be an X-Man. I think it's an interesting theme, and I think we have our first expert paying the price. It's Thunderbird. Now, there are two other character choices and characterizations that I want to bring up. The first being Wolverine. We find out that Wolverine's been to Japan before, and when he was a little rascal, which he's always a rascal, and he's like, he's always thought, ugh, I'd never be back here. But he actually speaks and reads fluent Japanese, which I think is really cool to have that little bit of, there's a softer side to Wolverine. You don't have to give us the full inner, inner without the shell, but it's great. It's a little touch. It's a nice touch. I, I like that. The other characterization that I'm actually really confused by is Colossus. Now, we often talk about that Colossus is the da, I'm very sad boy. But in this issue, he becomes, I am useless boy. I am just burden on team. I can't do anything right. Out of nowhere. A bigger problem is out of nowhere. He really gets more and more broken English. It's really weird. Also, on the subject of Colossus, when Banshee uses his powers and he blows up the rock and everybody has to cover their ears because it hurts, Colossus literally sticks his metal fingers in his metal ear holes. That's great. There's one final thing that has to be discussed in this two-parter. I alluded to it an episode or two ago, but in Uncanny 104, on his way out the door, Magneto bumps into a panel that says you have broken the seal on Mutant X. Well, now it comes back up. Mutant X is on the loose, and it wants to eat humans. This is one of those things where Claremont is weaving a very, very large picture, and it's going to come together, and it's going to fuck with your head. I think the last topic really fast before we move on to the next two uncanny issues we're covering this episode is that after banshee recovers he's been in, he's in a coma for a little bit the x-men are waiting for him to surprise him with a christmas party and i think it's really sweet and we talk about this theme of the x-men being a family and they actually state it which is really cool storm kind of is like all of you are my family we're a family we're a team we've known each other for a little while now we've grown to love each other and work together she gives kurt a little kiss on the cheek and she asks colossus you know what's wrong little brother what's what's wrong what's up talk to me it is such an important moment for me this is my x-men like i don't want to get weepy or anything but this is my team my core x-men are aurora logan and kurt 
as long as I have some combination of those three, uh, and once she's added to the team, Kitty Pride, once those four people are in place, basically the 80s, once the 80s, this is my X-Men, and this is my jam, and I just can't wait, because I'm starting to get those threads of what makes me so into this franchise, that having read it this many times, I still can't wait to talk about it every week, and that's why X's for Podcast is going weekly. What? By now, I believe I've hinted at it on other shows, but I don't believe it's made it into an episode of X's for Podcast yet. So, as you've heard on Now and Again, and as you heard on MCU, X's for Podcast will be going weekly. So hang in there, guys. The ride's about to get crazier. Yeah, we're going to be picking up pace, and we're probably going to get through a lot more stuff than you were expecting this faster. That's the 2019 goal. Kyle, Jonah, and Kevo are all on board, and we're really excited. But before we can get to Volume 2... Let's take a look at Uncanny 120 and 121. Flying all the way from Japan to now Canada, we start off seeing Vindicator, which we previously saw in 109 as Weapon Alpha, going by a new name now. And he's being told of his mission to capture Wolverine. Wolverine, even though he was resigned from his government forcing Canada, they're like, no, we want him back. And Vindicator has no real choice but to listen. So he assembles his own team of interesting characters. So I love Alpha Flight. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I really love John Byrne. I feel like it just doesn't come up enough. I really love John Byrne's Alpha Flight. I really hate all other Alpha Flight. Like, really, really just not for me. But I love John Byrne, and I love John Byrne's Alpha Flight. And it's insane to me that this is very obviously the backdoor pilot for an Alpha Flight series that won't happen until X-Men 175. That's fascinating that it only takes that long, because when I first saw this, I was like, oh, this could have just been its own series of the Canadian superhero team, and I would actually read it. I will say, though, every single one of them has a winter-slash-ice pun name, which is a little too on the nose, but it's fine. They are also maybe the most overpowered team in the history of comics, so Vindicator is probably the weakest member of this team. Shaman has... So Michael T. Youngman is one of my favorite characters in Marvel, and he is so incredible. And he is a medic who still embraces his shamanship. I actually have a friend who does an unbelievable shaman cosplay, and I'll I'll try and see if I can uh, get him to send me some photos so I can put them up for this, because he's so great. And then you have Northstar and Aurora, Northstar, who of course will eventually get fairy aids and be implicitly gay before not actually having fairy aids and not actually being a fairy so he can come out as gay. Sure, that happens. Aurora, who is one of the worst depictions of mental illness ever. While I love John Byrne's Alpha Flight, he will go some really unattractive places discussing mental health and... Aurora that just aren't great. Snowbird is ridiculous and her powers are ridiculous and she's always drawn a little bit ridiculous. Sasquatch is a fucking Sasquatch. That's the end of that sentence. However, there is a superior version of Sasquatch in an alternate universe in a book called Exiles that is one of my favorite titles. You will get an alternate Sasquatch 40 years from now who's even cooler somehow and I don't think that's really possible. Sadly, my favorite members of Alpha Flight are missing. So this is a little tricky. I do not have Puck, and I do not have Talisman, so I'm not sold yet on this Alpha Flight. It's sort of like how X-Men started for me, where I needed to get the right team in place. Ultimately, this two issues doesn't really, unfortunately, go anywhere. It just kind of circles itself. So rather than me continue to talk about it, my only real note is Storm seeing another Storm she couldn't tackle was kind of annoying, 
But then seeing when she could tackle was great. And Banshee in defense of Moira when he sees Vindicator for the first time doesn't even think and he just goes to use his powers on Vindicator and hurts his throat even worse. Oh, and it just hurts my heart so bad because he's such a good guy. Other than that, Jonah, this one's all yours, buddy. As Nico said, there isn't really that much meat-wise in these two issues. Outside of introducing what I think are interesting characters, one thing I do want to call out I have to call out my fuzzy elf. As the progressive people we are in understanding consent, Kurt kisses Snowbird in a chase later on at the end of 121, and it's not okay. As we said when we called out Spider-Man for it, consent is sexy, it should not have happened. Moving past that, outside of Banshee, there wasn't too many character-defining moments in this, except for maybe Logan, who understands a little bit that this is his fight, and he actually tells Scott, which I think is really great, you are my family and you actually don't know how much it means to me that you want to do this for me, but this is my fight. If they only want me, let me save you. He escapes by the end anyway, so don't even worry about it. Colossus kind of, in his resolve to try to be good, doesn't really do much at all this entire issue. He fights a little smarter, but that's about it. And I don't mean to jump in, but I did just remember a point I wanted to make. I am not a very big Cyclops fan. Pretty, just pretty much not my favorite character. He's one of my least favorite X-Men, and it's just one of those things, because it's not that I don't love Boy Scouts, because I love Captain America. There's just something about Scott that doesn't rub me the right way. This read has been the best thing that ever happened to my relationship with Scott Summers, because I am picking up so many little differences. I still don't love the character, but he's growing on me. I have always maintained that he always kind of took the easy, less dramatic battle. Here, I'm proven wrong. He says that if they're going to take Nightcrawler and Logan, he will do whatever it takes. He'll take any means necessary. He basically says he's going to kill Alpha Flight. And then after Storm stops the terrible storm and she comes down, Northstar, I think using his super speed for the only time in the two issues, it's actually hard to tell that he and Aurora are speedsters. They make it look like she might be really slippery at one point. She's just like, only if you can catch me, but they don't show her speeding away. Anyway, Northstar lands a hit right on Storm. Cyclops doesn't waste a second. He optic blasts Northstar in the face. I was like, you do that, man. Yeah, uh, it actually tells a little, a little bit about Northstar as him as a person. After actually saving the basically the entire country of Canada from this wild storm that Shaman created that he couldn't control, Storm is left in a very vulnerable state. And everyone stops fighting for a moment to kind of process what happened. But he takes a moment to punch Storm like nothing. Like, it's really dickish like you're actually supposed to be a superhero oh that's something i do want to talk about this is a great example in writing for showing the antagonistic force is actually are actually good guys they're a superhero team they're just doing what they're told they're not actually evil so i think that's okay but north star is a dick i can't stop smiling and i can't stop smirking and i wasn't like trying to cut you off but i couldn't wait to say it so you know and so your children will know and their children after that north star and sunfire are the two biggest assholes to ever be on the X-Men. Ever. Because Northstar will spend a number of years as an X-Man. But, oh my god, they're like the two least likable characters ever. They really are such dicks. And it's on purpose. They're meant to be assholes. I, I don't get it. Yeah, you could have likable assholes. I mean, people literally love Logan, and Logan is a dick. But that was really... You're kind of showing your true colors for a moment. Uh, Yeah, also, we get a little bit of glimpse of... Everyone on Weapon Alpha's power set, except for Quicksilver until that one moment where we find out he's a speedster. Aurora kind of has... You said Quicksilver? You meant Northstar? I'm not even kidding. Don't worry. That's not going to be the first time we do that. They, 
a speedster with gray hair. Yeah, it's uh, Aurora has the ability like to have a blinding light, but she's I also didn't really pick up that she's a speedster. It more like she can teleport a little bit. She's just fast in her chase with Nightcrawler. They're actually both removed from the fight because they're just playing. They're not actually fighting one another, which is interesting. Um, my only other call out about this issue is the way that Wolverine gets captured. Wolverine is shown as this amazing hunter and this amazing person who's able to detect a lot of different things going on in his surroundings. And he's able to know basically a lot of things are going to happen before they happen. A little bit like Spidey Sense. But he doesn't smell, hear, or see Sasquatch in his Sasquatch form at all and gets knocked out almost instantly. It doesn't cohesively come together enough for me. And it doesn't follow canon that Wolverine is hard to hunt. I think it goes in the same category as Jean saying in the vacation classic story that she, what's the good in having telepathy and telekinesis if the telepathy doesn't warn you when bad guys are coming and the telekinesis doesn't stop you from hitting the water. It's one of those things. They just need it. They just need this moment to happen so that they can talk about it. They just want to manipulate the situation so Logan can be abducted. Yeah, it's whatever. It's it, They're not bad. They're not bad issues. They're just a little bit boring and they're a little bit missing of the stuff that we got from the previous two that were so great. Uh, I think that about wraps it up on the Uncanny X-Men. So now we can talk about Classic X-Men number 25. Oh, okay. So there is, I don't think there's much to talk about in Classic X-Men number 25. I think it has a good concept and a good idea of what it could have been. Logan is, being, is on a solo mission at some point during time before japan or after i don't know they don't tell us and he gets blown up because he uses dynamite but now he's trying to get home in the freezing cold with no clothes on and he's being hunted by a hunter the issue focuses a little bit too much on the hunter trying to hunt logan because he only sees him as his beast and logan basically psychologically terrorizing him because he's the unkillable beast like the ultimate hunt basically and i think this issue could have done better if it focused on Logan being hunted. Because Logan commenting on this hunter's technique is absolutely hysterical. And I think the reverse psychology of the the hunter becoming the hunted with Logan could have been an interesting trait that they could have delved in more. Especially because Logan is meant to represent animal nature. Logan is such an example of a hunter-hunted relationship kind of situation. He is at all times the hunter and the hunted. He's a mutant. He's a member of the X-Men. They are constantly under attack. But... Logan's a hound, man. Logan will sniff out the bad guys, and then he'll claw them to death. So, I love this story. I think giant bears were really big at this time in Marvel, not being silly, but the Demon Bear Saga is one of the most beloved stories, and we will get to Bill Sienkiewicz, and if you think I am psychotic about John Byrne, you hang in to hear me freak the fuck out about Bill Sienkiewicz every page. In fact... There is a Nightcrawler image by Bill Sienkiewicz in New Mutants. That That's like the whole reason we did this podcast. So Jonah could have the context to get why that image is just so pretty. I don't have too much else on this one. But Jonah, do you have anything else before we move on to classic number 20 whatever? Uh, really, the only other note is it's nice to have Logan realize that he doesn't like killing because he can kill. After he defends himself from the bear, he kind of swears to himself, okay, Unless I am being brutally attacked by something that can't be reasoned with, an animal, then I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to kill it. 
because he understands the difference between an animal and a monster. He can't reason with a creature that's fighting purely on instinct. There is no good that can come from savagely murdering this bear. But I'm going to be real with you. When he can, he kind of enjoys cutting Magneto's head off. It seriously happened like twice one year. It was like different cannons. Don't get me wrong. It's like there's this one month that uh, Northstar dies three times. It's absurd. There's this like one month where Northstar just kept dying because of alternate cannons and stuff. Just don't, just don't go there. It's, it's not, it's not good representation. But so classic 26, Banshee and Wolverine and the bar. I think it's really cool when somebody who does a different job for the book gets to do another job. I think it's really fascinating when the letterer gets to say his story. And I don't even think this is poorly written. I think it's a confusing story. I think it looks a little funny. And I'm not the biggest fan of establishing secret backstories, as Jonah said earlier. This one's not quite as egregious as the Xavier Storm situation, but it's not my favorite. I agree. This is the issue that we're talking about where the art seems a little polarizing. I get an artist's interpretation of something. It just wasn't really that enjoyable to look at. It's not the clearest story. It's basically Banshee was on a heist to steal things. And the only reason why he was able to is because in the same bar of who he was trying to steal from, Logan was causing a scene to make money because he was a hustler. You could have told this story a little bit better. There was really not much else to talk about it. It was meh. It was very meh. I didn't feel like it went anywhere But it was nice to get a little bit more Banshee when I know Banshee's about to disappear for quite a while. They do manage to keep him around. He is going to hang around in the stories and you'll see him from time to time. But Banshee is going to become fewer and further between. So this Banshee moment was kind of nice. That said, I do not like the next classic. (sighs) Okay. Classic 27. Not good. It's my first problem with this is that you're canon wise. This goes in so much earlier than where we already are. It's supposed to fit in, like, between... I think in the classic omnibus, it says, like, 109, 110 is where it's supposed to go. Which then, if you think about it, it goes with the other appearance of Vindicator. And it follows the Alpha Flight classic arc. So I think they thought they could get away with it. But I was confused having read it in the omnibus where it told me where it goes. Yeah, and... It describes this as the love triangle between Gene, Wolverine, and Scott, but it really doesn't come off like that. It really just kind of comes off as Wolverine not being able to take a hint. While it is going to be revealed that Gene really does have something for Wolverine, the way she's acting right now and saying no, it's kind of a little gross. Scott's also not really in this, so don't describe it to me some way when it's really not about that at all. I agree. There is a lot of great sexual tension between Logan and Gene over the years. They have a really dynamic relationship, and I very, very ship them. To be honest, they're my main Marvel ship. It's them and Daredevil Elektra. That's Owen. And Pete Wisdom, Captain Britain, but we will get there someday. It's not really a ship. That's like the one slash pairing I can't unsee in Marvel. (laughs) Anyway, I also think that inevitably Thor has been gay with all of his buddies. I imagine like... I imagine Thor and Balder are, like, super into docking. I think that's, like, gotta be something they're super about. And I think the worst part is, as I'm describing it, I'm making gestures. It's not a good story. Not to be confused with Dawkin, Wolverine's future son. 
Right. I don't think Thor and Doc and Doc. So, especially not with Howard the Duck. So, okay. I don't have anything else about this classic. It's forgettable. It's ugly. It's about a sewer. And there's not even a Morlock to be found. This is just not... Man, the end of this episode is just bringing me down because the Power Mans are the worst. Yeah, I think that wraps up about classic number 27. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh... Power Man 56 and 57, my first statement about this, it could have been one issue. It really could have been. It did not need to be split up in two. I even felt like it could have been an X-Men classic. If they'd found a way to make the X-Men that show up for four pages inexplicably in New York when the last time we saw them, they were in Canada. If that had been the case, maybe. But no, this is two issues hurts my brain. It's just following Danny Rand, Iron Fist, and Luke Cage Power Man to setting up their business as superheroes for hire, but like, and their first job is to protect these King Tut artifacts in this museum, but it was plotted against them. Boring plot. The first 56 was really boring. There was actually very little action in this whatsoever. It has weird themes that they're trying to put into this, which I understand we're coming into an issue later. It still could have been saved or done in a better way. And then 57 just happens to have the X-Men in it. I really think they're removable. There's there's just a lot going on. I have a couple of notes about it, but it's really interesting that they are contrasts against X-Men and less necessarily positive things about this arc. I thought this arc was a little silly and a little heavy. This arc also pointed out something that we've noticed a little bit more on Champions than here. Comics at this time seem to break down into five pages of actual plot, five pages of status quo, for lack of a better term, where they just sort of work to let you know what you're dealing with again. Make sure that you feel comfortable with the material at hand. Then there's kind of like five pages of side stories where we get other characters that tie into the title. And then there's five pages of buying time, whether it's a training montage or it's a cutaway to a villain that we may see later on, something. There's always five pages that don't really have anything to do with this story in any way, and it's not an ongoing backup narrative. These stories tend to break down into these four patterns over and over again, five pages each or so. I actually really appreciated the Iron Fist and Power Man ones here. It was interesting that it opened up with something that I feel like the X-Men haven't had in forever. It was a training montage, and the more I think about it, the X-Men have become such a strong family unit They don't train against each other so much as train together now. And I also really appreciated the amount of recapping because in so many ways, this is our first issue of Power Man and Iron Fist, even though we've had a number of these characters running around our our stories for a while. I really appreciate the catch up. I understand these characters a little bit better. It's about them trying to make their two different worlds meet. However, the issue falls apart for me when they literally refer to the living monolith by his name, Dr. Abdul. Like, they're literally like, oh, yes, this guy who is known as a supervillain without calling him a supervillain. It's just one of those things that, Danny, you're a fucking millionaire with all of this information at your disposal, and you do no research on anything. It's almost as annoying as this being where Misty is totally chill with Colleen being on a date with Scott, knowing that everybody thinks everyone's dead. Here's like, that's, I think it's one of the biggest sins about this issue, is that Missy, at no point you're telling me that they're back in New York for an undisclosed amount of time at this point. She still hasn't brought up that Jean is alive and that she saw her at the airport going to Scotland and Europe. What? 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 
outside of that, I think the issue is pretty good. I don't think it's it's definitely not the worst two issues that we've read on this podcast before. I think they could have been better. This fight also ends way too poorly. Lady Marlott doesn't actually do any damage. You think he breaks one building and that's about it. And not to be like, either be a super villain and kill some shit or get off the page, but maybe a little bit. This felt like a lot of build up to lead to nothing. It's as if the bad guy kept being like, look, I'm finally all powerful. And then kept being like, yeah, but I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm just going to be chill. This was so removed from, from drama and narrative. It was a lot of chase. It was a lot of buying time. I agree. The supervillain and all the X-Men are really removable. You could have replaced the supervillain with literally any other villain because he's not even revealed to be the villain of this little arc until the end of 56. Really weird choice storytelling-wise. There wasn't actually a lot going on. It's just... I don't even know how to describe it anymore. And honestly, that kind of wraps up this episode for us. I have one bit of house cleaning that I am so excited to talk about. We are going to get to read the one ever issue that is a collaboration between Chris Claremont and George Perez. To explain who George Perez is, George Perez is the Chris Claremont of Teen Titans, and he is going to come on and do the art for one awesome fucking annual, and it is so goddamn cool that George Perez and Chris Claremont work together that seriously, there's a forward by Claremont about how cool it is. That's how cool it is. So it's really exciting. George Perez is like the master of superhero comic art. It is unbelievable what he contributes to form, like Kirbyist. That's, we're talking that level of contributes to form and the medium. And to get to read Uncanny X-Men Annual 3 and see Claremont and Perez come together, admittedly, it's before their heydays. They're not quite yet the, the mega superstars they're going to be, but it's so great to get to see them work together. I'm just so happy. And I'm really excited to cover that. All right. I have to point out, we no longer say there's too many of them. We no longer say they don't have personalities. We no longer say they don't fight like a team. We no longer say they take back the events of the last issue. All of our problems with it seem to be how multiple books intersect with it at this point. It's almost as if Uncanny X-Men is beginning to read better in a vacuum. Yes. We're down to right now at this point where we are at Uncanny, we have five functional X-Men. Cyclops, Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, and Colossus. And you got Xavier in space, Gina Muir Island, Lorna and Havoc falling into the ocean. You have Jamie and Moira being. You have uh, Beast running around with the Avengers. Pay attention to the upcoming read lists. Classic is about to be read out of order. So just keep an eye out for that. We're also going to be bringing Kyle in from the Champions episodes to help us close out this volume before we relaunch for Dark Phoenix Saga. And, you know, Jonah, I had a great time. This is getting to be easy, fun, and fast. I don't feel bogged down by the material anymore. So I hope you're having as good a time. Absolutely. I have to agree. I think we're getting to this point in X-Men where we're really just enjoying the main narrative of what it is. And I think that's super great. I'm really happy to be able to, not that I didn't enjoy the X-Men that we've read so far, but I'm really excited to keep going. This has made me want to be a fan when this first came out and to be like, when's the next issue going to come out? Who's going to get a fight? That kind of stuff. I'm really excited for what's to come. I think one of my favorite things is we're going to get, we're really close to the introduction of Kitty Pride, and I can't wait to meet her and to see, you know, what she's going to bring to the X-Men. I know that she's going to cause a lot of character development between them, not necessarily when we first meet her, but soon and I'm, I'm itching for it. 
And I think, yeah, I'm just really excited to be and happy to be an X-Men fan. Yeah, and I'm so happy that you've taken this journey with me. And I'm so excited for you to get to read Kitty. I think as a science kid, you're going to be really happy to find out that Kitty Pride is written in because she's a science and engineering genius. And Xavier's is the only school smart enough in the world to challenge her. And that is actually her introduction. She's just so brilliant at computers. So I'm so excited to take this journey with you, Jonah. And until we get to go down that road, oh, you look so excited. Until we get to go down that road, Jonah, where can everybody find you online? If you'd like to find me and discuss more X-Men stuff with me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino, respectively. Nico, where can all your lovely fans find you, contact you, and interact with you? Well, as always, you can check out the other incredible shows I get to be a part of here on the Cage Club Network, like now and again with Chris Podcast, where we cover the Now That's What I Call Music series, as well as... Talk about Carly Rae Jepsen obsessively. Don't forget to check out mcu.html where my husband Kevo and I take a look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and talk about it in more or less conversation. Occasionally it devolves into screaming. There's also a number of other amazing shows here on the Cage Club Network you should definitely check out. As well as take a look at the Patreon and see if you want to be part of the team that helps decide what the crew covers next. Other than that, you can check out my comic, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com, which is about an awesome speedster, not North Star or Quicksilver. He's actually a nice guy speedster. Come to think of it, why are all Marvel speedsters dicks? Anyway, you can check me out on Instagram, where I'm always running around being a thirst trappy thought, at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, that's everything. I'm done. And until next time, keep those X-Genes in check, and we will see you. Jonah! See ya! <laughs>